0: Welcome to the Circle of Birth podcast. I'm your host and advocate, Ali Kranz. These podcasts are here to gather stories, people and information to better our understanding of the wisdom of birth and how we can reclaim our connections to birth from conception and beyond. You will hear stories not only from Australia but from all over the world bringing together women, partners, midwives, doulas and all the people that have a birth story to share. So jump right in for this next Circle of Birth story. So this podcast, we are welcoming Debbie and Melissa, and we are going to explore birth and healing. I am fortunate that these two women shared with me an insight into their own birth experiences and the journey of their network, Birth Talk, and recently published book, How to Heal a Bad Birth, Making Sense, Making Peace, and Moving On. I was moved in so many aspects from spending time with Debbie and Melissa It brought up a lot of feelings for me from my first birth and the healing journey that I've come from and overcome too. So there's so much of this podcast that just sat with me. Um, I have the book and I'm really keen to get into it Uh, and as a lot of you know in retrospect I'm sure if I had access to this material years ago I probably could have made sense quicker of what my feelings were. Uh, the f- the feelings we have are real and Debbie and Melissa have created a great avenue for us to acknowledge, accept and as the title says, move on to either your life or your bonding with your children or your subsequent births. Um, there's so much in this book uh, that can help. So this podcast today will talk about an unplanned and the cesarean birth, uh, l- long labor too. and However, I won't say this is not going to be a trigger if you're just about to birth. So remember, we talk about empowerment here, and this is what this podcast is all about. So for those first-time mamas and partners out there, this podcast is great to listen to to remind you to solidify your support networks and inform yourselves leading up to your birth so you can have a great first birth and be prepared for whatever the outcome may be. So for those who have had that difficult birth experience too, this is it. You will hear firsthand on how you can find the path to healing and acceptance And just listening to these stories from Deborah and Melissa, and it's never, ever too late uh, to to begin. So you will listen to these stories that resulted in empowerment by these women and went on to have more amazing birth experiences. And of course, they formed Birth Talk and this amazing book, How to Heal a Bad Birth. Um, I was just enjoying, after listening to these two motivational and optimistic women speak and... You will hear their connection to each other is real and from that they've made a huge difference to so many lives already. So please enjoy. Okay, welcome to the Circle of Birth, Um, Debbie and Melissa. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and share your stories and especially the work that you both have produced and what you're doing now. Um, Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. So, what we'll do is we'll start off if you want to describe uh, both your stories together um, and how that led you into Birth Talk and the book that I've got in my hot little hands here, How to Heal a Bad Birth. Um, And if you just want to describe your first birth and that journey, um, and that'll be great for us. (laughs) Sure.
1: Um, This is Debbie. So, um, I guess my journey with birth um literally started with my first birth but we often say that we don't birth in a vacuum and we have a bit of a a birth legacy so I guess if I take that back you know and looking at the pregnancy and even before that um I had a I came from a, a birth legacy of being born by cesarean and my mother had had two cesareans so there was that little bit um you know, growing up, that little bit of, um, I guess, doubt about um, birthing, there was a really very little exposure to birth, which is very similar to most women. I'd never seen anything birth. And even when I was working as a nurse, I, I, I had never seen birth. And, um, you know, at that point I was at quite a different stage and I was very, as a nurse, I was very good at managing Pain for people who, who were injured or ill, and I was very comfortable with surgery and <clears throat> my perception was that I had a fairly good pain threshold with chronic pain, but not so good with acute pain and so there was and there was that culture that we have where there was this fear of this unknown thing that was birth, so I was actually in somewhere was actually a lot more comfortable with the idea of um cesarean birth at some level i I used to joke that maybe i'd have an elective cesarean under a general because i probably wouldn't you know hack it and um i didn't feel the need to prove anything so to speak as some people say and that's kind of where my headspace was which was totally based on fear not on any information and and there, but there was this little seed deep within me, which I know now was, you know, due to a fair bit of gifts from birth and a little bit of instinctive seed, that maybe there was something more to it than that. So then jumping ahead, I went and did midwifery then, and <clears throat> that's when I first got to witness birth, and um, all sorts of births, and just saw how different they could be, and, and um and I just saw how amazing they could be, and the power and the strength, and in all sorts of different births as well. And and that's when I first was like, I I want to experience that. So that was a really new thing for me, and I'm really grateful for that because most women don't get that experience of of feeling comfortable with birth and actually wanting to birth. And so then I got to the stage where I wanted to have babies, and I um you know I was trying to conceive, and after about a year of not conceiving found out um, that I wasn't ovulating and then I actually had a whole that was very shocking to me I think as women a lot of us just expect that we will have families and all of a sudden this whole life that I imagined was in question and um, and there was a lot of grief over that But it was, and then I, I came to the idea that I could adopt even though I know that's incredibly challenging mm-hmm. and a whole different path but um, there was also grief over what if I can never birth? And, and to me that was such a foreign concept from where I would have been five years earlier, I was grieving that idea. And, um, so I went into my birth really excited about the opportunity to birth and really excited about um, getting a chance to, to feel the power and the strength and the amazingness that I'd seen other women feel and just regular women, not because they had any special abilities, but because of what happened to their bodies during birth and because of how their bodies were supported in birth. So, so yes, I fell pregnant and so that was the first, yes, step one. I miscarried that birth or that pregnancy and, um, and went through this with that miscarriage. My hormones and the reason I'm going here is because there's a really wide range of normal and not everybody's textbook um but my hormonal um levels were all a bit confusing and was I pregnant wasn't I pregnant um anyway and finally the pregnancy looked like it was going to stay and so after that miscarriage I also had to I had a very big shift in my mind in terms of I trusted birth I, I was happy to do the process I was very excited about it all but I couldn't ultimately control the exact outcome or the path it would take. And, and so I very much was um, saying, you know, if, if you would like to stay, you're very welcome. We, we would like you to stay. We're ready for you. Um, throughout my pregnancy, just to take that feeling that I needed to to fix it or make it work and just go, you know what, you can only do the best you can and, and some things are beyond your control. But in saying that, I also having worked in the system, was acutely aware that that didn't mean I just wanted to let go of all control. I just wanted to go um, with the flow of my body and to support um, my body as best as I could to have the best experience. And I was also aware that I needed to be quite strong in that because I'd been in a system where I'd seen that um, just being taken down a different path often. So so anyway, so that was, I guess, the, yeah, um, the lead up. That's the... <laughs> not in a vacuum, so I got to this birth and I decided that I would, I really knew that I would be vulnerable um, and I really knew that I just needed to be able to focus on birthing and I really knew that I needed to feel safe and supported. And so I, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Did you, so did you work uh, to a point,
0: up to a certain point in your pregnancy? Uh, Yes. Uh, Yeah so yeah. how how did you go? I know That's you're just writing. describing before, so did you sort of have this challenge with uh being midwife Deb and uh mother Deb, like you said, letting go and allowing your body um to do its thing um but also sort of understanding the system and the processes
1: in labor do you mean like in the birth itself do you yeah,
0: mean? so coming yeah. into the birth and yeah. heading into it and your outlook um
1: I guess i i became a little bit um, very diligent about what I thought might be the challenges in birth and and really trying to make sure that the support people around me really knew about what things might be helpful to be said, what things will be about how I wanted to be involved in decision-making. So I spent a lot of energy antenatally setting that up (coughs) so that I, I sort of viewed it a bit like, you know, when I planned my wedding that I that I did a lot of work before the day, but on the day I wanted to be able to let let all of that go and know that the people around me knew what I wanted. So
2: what about that um clash between you as a midwife and you as a birthing woman?
1: Um, no, I think i I think i I distinctly said to my carers, just. Please assume that I know nothing. Just talk to me like anybody else, and because I didn't want to, uh, I was a little bit aware of. I don't want to just agree with you because I probably should know that, even if I'm feeling like I don't know that. So um, I just said, no, I'm just going to ask questions about everything and just treat me like any, uh, you know, like any birthing woman. But at the same time, I knew that I had. Um, I guess a distinct advantage, and I was very, very grateful and felt blessed for that over a lot of women in terms of what things were probably going to be helpful for me, and what things weren't um not as well as I know now, <laughs> all the reasons why, but um when you're when you're in birth with women it's um you it, there's certain things you can distinctly feel that are helpful and not helpful, so so you knew how to but, set up your environment so I chose continuity of care. I went through a birth center and I had um, a midwife that I got to know, um, I probably had <laughs> slightly longer sessions with her than, than the average person. Um, just talking to her and and really I really wanted her to know me and I really wanted to feel that anything I thought was important, that she knew about that before. So I um, I would ask for it or please make sure I'm comfortable and pop a towel on my knees if I've got tile marks um, through to... Um, Positive things for myself, like this is safe pain, it's working pain, or breathe down to your baby. Um, just different things that, and and things that I thought they could say, like, um, um, you know, you you are you it. are doing it, rather than if I felt like I couldn't do it, saying you are doing it, rather than. Um, you can do it because then I might get angry and say, "How do you know?" Uh, <laughs> so I, I was fairly, I guess, directive in that way because I just really wanted them not to feel out of um, to feel really prepared and really supported and really empowered, and also that I felt that I didn't I didn't need to come and and tend to myself or make sure anything happened. I just wanted to let go of everything and and trust those people around me. So,
2: so her support people were really beautifully supported by Deb in, in the lead-up, which meant that during the birth then they didn't feel helpless, did they? They they felt really empowered to, yeah,
1: yep, to yeah. be, that their role was really valued, yeah. Even things like when we go in, you know, please keep the stimulation low or, or let me have a shower or just giving them ideas on what might be helpful, um, supporting any birthing woman, but it just happened to be me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I um got to the end of my pregnancy. I was I was getting towards 42 weeks, which is considered the end of term, and um and I was facing that I'd probably um if I didn't have my baby by 42 weeks, I wouldn't be able to birth in the birth center anymore with my midwife. I'd that was their policy. I'd have to transfer and um the she was my only support that really new birth I need to get into labour so we did all the raspberry leaf tea and curry and just walking stairs and all the rest of it and eventually um, it was a Saturday Uh, Monday was going to be the big 42 weeks I think and so I was like I've got this weekend to get myself into labour was where my headspace was and I decided I would have some um, castor oil and I was a little bit wary because I didn't want to have you know, explosive diarrhea around a birth suite. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and were you feeling stressed at that stage like uh, over that weekend? I feeling was
1: feeling pressured? a bit stressed. Yeah, I was. Well, yes and no. I, I wasn't feeling scared like a lot of women are feeling scared because you know they're told their babies might die and things. I knew that. Not as much as I know now, but I knew that women can go post-dates and, and that, you know, most of the time um, their babies and their placentas are just fine. But I was in a position I didn't want to be in. I didn't want yes. to have to make those decisions. Yes. And I was, you know, going, oh, typical.
0: But anyway. i sure you didn't want to have to drink castor. Or either
1: <laughs> well, I, I drank it in some apricot nectar, so I was lucky again with that little bit of free knowledge that yeah. that makes it palatable. Uh, uh. <laughs> and... um and, you know, that uh, that, along with the other 50 things I've been doing to irritate my uterus or bowel or whatever <laughs> probably helped, uh, worked. And, <laughs> and, and the fact that I was probably very close because um, my second child went into – I went into lay with her with no pushing um, and I think 12 days post. So I was pretty much probably going to do it in the next 24 mm-hmm. hours anyway, mm-hmm. possibly. Well, you can't know for sure but, you know. Anyhow – so it was, it was early afternoon, and started getting niggles, and you know that purity pain sort of stuff. And and um, my sister was over, and, and and probably about three or so in the afternoon, I said, oh, there's yeah, stuff happening. There's some definite. There's a little bit of rhythm happening, and it's happening fairly, um, you know, every fifteen minutes or something. I'm getting a bit of a a crampy type feeling, and me into established labour sort of. You know where I'm going to keep dilating rather than just doing the early labor, which is getting the baby in position and getting the cervix shorter and all the rest of it. Anyway, so we went in, and it turned out I I was five centimeters dilated, so I had moved into that next stage on contractions that were seemingly not good enough to do that, but it was going to be a long slow haul because you know that I wasn't having as many contractions and the baby was not in a great position she was sitting quite high and that's probably because I pushed her into the whole deal Mm -hmm. and um so it's just going to be a long hard slog (laughs) and I was prepared for that and so I labored at the birth center from I think about 7am all the way into the evening were you in the pool yeah I was was mainly in the in the shower I was in the shower a lot I was over the birth ball I was walking um tried to walk stairs and things to bring the head down And eventually it just got to the point that I was just utterly exhausted Mm. because I'd just been on my feet the whole time. And eventually, so I hopped into the bath, into the pool, I mean, um, which was something that I hadn't – I'd never liked baths. I always liked showers. So I didn't think I'd like to bath. And I hopped in there and I was like, oh, my goodness. (laughs) I I can lay down and I just lay. I could lay. That was the only place I could lay comfortably, and I'd still have to flip myself into my hands and knees for each surge. But that was much easier to do in water, and I had my husband behind me, and and I was just sleeping so solidly between surges and and um and then they they started um. Which was fine for a while, and then they just started getting further and further apart, and um, you know, and and you know, in in the hospital setting, a lot of things is very much assessed on you know that there's progress. It seems to be that it's going mm. ahead, and and this was sort of stopping, and um, and so there was very much well, we need to get this labour going, and uh, so I was like, oh mm. no, I was at a fairly fresh midwife and was okay okay um you know in hindsight now I think and having been with many women um who sometimes do get exhausted I think if I'd been allowed to sleep um a bit longer that probably would have been the best thing for my body um but that that wasn't an option and my midwife was doing her best to already um you know reassure people uh people uh, the medical team that um that I was still progressing that I that I that there was no reason to put ups and toes and all things like that it was just a longer than average labor and um I just kept saying am I okay yes is my baby okay yes well then I'm fine to continue and you know it was epically well not epically there's a lot of people have much longer ones but it you know it was felt like a marathon but I felt strong and amazing and, and awesome through it as well. I, I obviously had a whole bunch of lovely hormones helping me along mm-hmm. the way. And, and, um, I was just like, oh, this is hard, but I can keep going. I'm fine. And, and, and there was elements of really good stuff in there as well. And, and so I, I wasn't, I just felt exhausted. I felt like I was running a marathon, but I didn't feel like I'd couldn't do it or didn't want to be there or, or anything bad. It just felt like really hard work. But at the same time, I felt really there's something fulfilling about doing something really hard work sometimes if you're feeling good otherwise. Anyhow, so um, so eventually those contractions were about 12 minutes apart and and we decided, okay, maybe... In the situation I was in where no one was going to just let me have a sleep for a few hours, <laughs> um, maybe if we broke the waters that would help a head come down a little bit more solidly onto the cervix and um, and that would help because my from my internal they were saying you're eight centimetres and it's all very loose but the baby's head needs to come down onto the cervix more. So, um, so. Again, you can hear that there was conversation. I was very much in, in the, you know, very central to making the decisions and, and talking about it and asking questions and going, right, okay. And so I made a decision of, okay, well, it seems even though it's a bit high and there are some cord safety concerns you need to think about in that scenario, it seemed like it would be safe and okay to artificially rupture my membranes. And... Well actually prior to that I I thought that I was a lot further along because I'd had this real pushy sensation and I thought, Woohoo, here I am <laughs> <laughs> and um it turns out it was my membranes and <laughs> bulging on my pelvic floor. So it was like a head was there, same sort of feeling internally. So I had this real, you know, pushy pushy stage and then we discovered that there was no head there. Anyway, so I hopped out of the bath, um my midwife um I you know, went over to the mattress I think and, and she broke artificially broke my waters and um we'll think okay hopefully she comes down a bit and we'll just dilate, we we'll be ready to go. And she did come down but she came down into my pelvis yeah came right down posteriorly. She was posterior and there was meconium in the water as well. And so we were like, oh, okay, so she could have meconium, she could have poo because she's 42 weeks and she's big enough too. She could have it because I've been taking castor oil and maybe that helped her to poo as well. Or she could have it because I've been having a long labour and maybe she's distressed. So we had to sort of check that out. Mm. And we were like, oh, great, she's posterior. This might take a bit longer again <laughs> yeah. and I might need some really good contractions to help her turn on my pelvic floor. But anyway, so we went, Oh great. So that didn't quite fix you know, just take us into the next stage like we wanted. And so at that point I had to transfer out of the birth centre to birth suite because of that was the policy around meconium. And um and the meconium wasn't terribly um thick. So we weren't worried about her breathing it in when she was born as such. It was more like, is she distressed? Is she handling this long labour that we kind of forced her into <laughs> in a not a great position? So um, we went next door and and I made the decision then. I just said, okay, well, they wanted to pop a CTG, so a continual monitor on me, and I was like, well, that's fair enough to track her for a little bit, you know, put that on for 20 minutes, make sure she is okay, Um. They sort of said, "Well, now your contractions are fifteen minutes apart. I really need to get some good, strong contractions to turn her and and so I made a decision at that point to have some centosin and through a drip as well, and little did I know that it was probably seven hours earlier that that was being suggested at the doorway, but my midwife who was saying she's fine, baby's fine, and so I'm really glad about that because i really got to have all these hormones and that my baby was really prepared to the fact that she was coming out and all and i didn't have these interventions earlier which might have meant that i had them long well with different side effects or you know so anyway and it felt like the right time basically <laughs> so we we went next door and i said you know you know i i, I wasn't allowed in the bath anymore because i had russian membranes mcone and we had to check on her and i said you're asking me to lay there with a CTG with a syntocin and drip i I don't believe I can't do that I can't lay down I think I, I'm going to choose to have an epidural in hindsight again I think I probably would have tried it first. Um, and then possibly still ended up choosing an epidural. But at the time, I was just like, that's impossible. You're, you're taking away all my resources. You're taking away my ability to move. You're taking away my bath. my bath. You're taking away my freedom to just focus and be in my own space with my hormones. You're interfering with my hormones, you know. So all, all my tools have been taken away. You expect me to still be able to run this marathon? I don't think I can. So." I chose to have um, epidural along with the cytosin. We went next door. We did that, and I thought, okay, well, hopefully we can just whack this up for an hour or two. My contractions will pick up enough for her to turn and come down. I'll fully dilate, and we can turn it all off, and I can push this baby out. That was yeah. that was my, my next hope, and, then, you know, if that didn't work out, we would have dealt with the next thing, but we kept feeling like we were dealing with this and this and this. and um, So I transferred and I had the epidural and the cytosin and, um, and that was by far the hardest part of my labour was having the epidural sighted. It was just horrific trying to sit when I couldn't sit, trying to keep still and being terrified that they were going to damage my spine or something, you know, like uh, Telling a woman to sit still while she's having an epidural is is just mm-hmm. pointless. Almost, I mean, you've got to sit as still as you can, but saying it in a way that "why aren't you sitting still?" is just it's <laughs> not fair. Because and and bend and bend and push your back out, and I had this huge stomach. And I was like, I am. I think anyway. <laughs> Um, so that that was the you know it was by this point it was 29 hours or something and that was by far the hardest hardest part part of the whole thing was trying to sit still and go against my body rather than with it for that period of time. Once the epidural was in, I thought, okay, let's make the most of this. Let's try and get to sleep. Um, did you I- get Did you get a sort of
0: instant relief once it was in? Did you get a chance to just um, sort of have that layback moment and a bit of a breath? Yeah,
1: it was- it wasn't instant, but it was just like it's just like the um, I, I guess it felt like I was gonna say the intensity just dropped right back, um, but it wasn't like, oh, um, not instantaneously, it was sort of like running the marathon and now I'm allowed to walk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and now now I'm sitting down beside the path for a bit, going, yeah. yeah. So it wasn't like it was all gone. It was just like, whoa, been working hard. You know, literally sitting beside the path. Yeah. I think, catching, yeah. your catching my breath and and I, um, you know, but I, and that's because you know, not, I I didn't need my focus then for everything for the labour, and so I um, said to my support people order some food for yourself, get some pizza or something, because they'd been going for twenty or nine hours. And or oh, yeah. And um and that's I actually my Melissa is my sister in law and I knew that since that morning, I think, or even since the night before, perhaps, I don't know, because I went in no, I think since the morning. I went into Labour the night before, but early that morning, seven AM, I went into the birth centre. And my my parents lived out of town as did my sister and they were all at my brother's house, house which is at, at Melissa's house, <laughs> and I knew they were all there. They'd been there all day. It was now like ten o'clock at night or nine o'clock, ten o'clock, I think something like that. Pressure <laughs> day, and uh, I was thinking, uh, um, well, I was thinking, I hope they're they're okay, but but <laughs> but I was really really thinking about Melissa because Melissa, um, and I'll, I'll let her tell a little bit about that in a second. But Melissa's firstborn was two years older than this birth, and a lot of the things that had happened in terms of it was long and you know, posterior baby, and and wasn't no, no, no McCown, but um, and you know transferring out of the birth center and having some and having an epidural, a lot of the what happens were happening the same, yeah. but so I was I, with, ha- I could see.
2: When we kept getting these updates of what was happening with Deb and I could felt like I could just see my birth happening to her and I was absolutely horrified.
1: Yeah, and I was imagining because I knew that Melissa's birth had been really traumatic, um, because of how she she felt throughout it and because of the support she had and the different information and all sorts of different things. So hers had been incredibly traumatic, whereas mine I was feeling like, well, yep, okay, I'm I'm buggered, but this is empowering, this so is amazing. And She's yeah. suggesting them to order pizza. Yeah. That's, how, <laughs> that's how crazy she was. <laughs> and, and, I said, and I said to my brother, I think I was talking yeah, to, you're right to was, my, Yeah, you talking to my husband. to Melissa's husband. I said, because I, I was just thinking, oh, Melissa, this is going to, you know, I didn't know the word trigger then, but no. um, I just thought, oh, she's, she's just going to be sitting in the corner beside herself. Just Which thinking, I was. Thinking, oh, my God, wow. it's just going like mine. So I said yeah. to my brother, tell Melissa that I'm okay, that it's fine, that I'm okay, that it's going to be all right. And it's, you know, we're, both sitting, we're both sitting here with tears <laughs> in our
2: eyes now because
1: it was that big. It was just like, you know,
2: I'm thinking, no, no, it can't go like that for her. And she's thinking, oh, no, Melissa's going to be thinking it's going like that for yeah. me. And we, So because Debbie had been at my birth and we both – just knew where each other would be. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I didn't want her to be where I had been and yeah. she knew what I was thinking and she couldn't explain to me that it was different. Yeah, at that point. She, she <laughs> would just say I'm okay and and I'm just then sobbing because I'm like,
0: she's thinking about me and she's in her birth. <laughs> oh, no. that, that's just what a beautiful connection that you guys just showed there together and just like you said, Deb's in labour and just to have that thing, it's like, yeah, tell her I'm okay and... Um.
1: <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah, yes, it was definitely crossed my mind, and, yeah. and you know the epidural sitting on the side of the road gave me a moment to voice it. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so um, so anyway, so I had they once once they were all eating pizza, and um, and I had staff freaking out that there was pizza in the room and saying to me, "You're not eating pizza, are you?" And I was like, "Why?" You know, I was thinking, "Oh, they all think I'm going." To for a cesarean well I don't think I'm going for a cesarean just yet I might but I you know it was to say what had been happening all day that assuming that because sometimes when it looks like this it goes this way just going well let's just take it that way and as opposed to let's just follow where mm-hmm. it needs to go and and so I ate my nuts and little bits and pieces <laughs> much too did, did, you like, want you to eat, did you want to eat pizza no no. no no that wasn't I had, like, just, like, trail mix like, no, no. So, but i was like i can if i want to yeah <laughs> um but at the same time i was also going okay be sensible the chances that you having might have a cesarean are a lot higher higher now than they were so i just you know but I was also like, you are also running a marathon and you need to keep yourself hydrated and have energy. So right. balance that out, you know, be be a bit sensible. Anyway, and um, so I slept then for a bit, which was awesome. And the only, the only thing with the epidural actually, I had this incredible pain in my, my left, I can't remember now, I think it was my left hip or in one of my hips. And I can remember saying, you know, is that normal? Is that normal? And 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 being told that sometimes happens with an epidural, it's like, oh, okay, and, you know, in hindsight years later when I had my next birth, I know that that was when my baby was moving through my pelvis, and because I was laying flat on my back, it couldn't open as easily, and that's what that pain was, and I am, whenever I have, um, you know, being, working as a birth worker, often you're in interesting positions with women and when my and I have lower back issues and when when they play up it's always through that sacroiliac region and I'm um sometimes when it's really bad I go ah I can feel that it's exactly the same pain so it was really interesting mm-hmm. it wasn't two years later that I went oh so now if a woman tells me she's got pain I'll, we just move her a bit because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I did I didn't have the cues in my body to tell me to move I just knew I could feel something but anyway so an hour or so later yes I was fully dilated the baby had come down I was having you know regular surges um you know probably every you know, three in ten by that point with the drip and um and so we were like cool this looks like it might work <laughs> this last step of the plan might might actually come off mm-hmm. and um <laughs> and I was and so my midwife said, "Well, you, you can start pushing," and I didn't have an urge to push because I had an epidural. Mm-hmm. And even though I, I asked them to turn syntocin and the epidural off at that point, hoping that that sensation would come back quick enough for me to um, be able to feel more of it, but it, it probably didn't really. And um, and so I can remember my, my midwife um, looking at me. Oh, I can remember some of the, the other staff, some of the other obstetric staff and midwives who'd come in saying can you feel you know can you feel your contractions can you feel that urge to push and and I I kind of told a little furby because I kind of said yes and which is not I think it you know it's really important that you can have an honest relationship with your carer but I just instinctively felt And I know now that they were prepping me for Caesar. I I instinctively felt that if I gave them that piece of information, that wasn't going to be a safe thing for me to do. It would lead somewhere I didn't want. So I said, yes, I could feel it. But then I looked at the midwife who I knew and shook my head, looked at her and said, no, I can't. (laughs) So she just put her hand on my belly, you know, and would feel the contractions and she'd nod at me and i'd push and because i'd had that feeling of those Do you mean she'd nod and she'd nod at me that let me know that i was having a contract yeah and um because i'd had those probably 40 minutes earlier in the day with the membranes on the pelvic floor i knew what that felt like and i knew where to push so that was actually really helpful at that point point. and we had a mirror so i could see you know as she was coming closer i could see that and and so that's how we did we did second stage with with her telling me when i had good contraction and me pushing and um and and so my daughter went she crowned and then and and i i never forget that we had a there was a pediatrician there too because um the meconium and they were thinking you know often the case if if women don't get enough time and support or or sometimes it's needed as well because the epidural paralyzes the pelvic floor um, you know the, the chance of an instrumental birth is going to be higher as well so they usually have a pediatrician in there and um, and I pushed my baby out and um, she the pediatrician was all teary and my midwife and I were kind of looking a little bit at each other a bit confused as to why he was you know it was nice but <laughs> really are you that moved okay um and he said, oh, it's been so long since I've seen a baby being pushed out. And I can remember that stuck with me because mm-hmm. I just thought so many women in this scenario without the support I had, without the knowledge I had, would have been felt that they would have, you know, um, had intervention much earlier when it when it actually wasn't needed, you know. Um, so I thought, you know, he's usually there and they're doing the intervention and whereas we kept saying, no, no, we're fine, just give it a bit of time. And so Tay was born, which was amazing and awesome and wonderful. But, but I, I distinctly remember, and I didn't know why then, but she came up to my chest and, you know, all goopy and lovely. And and I looked at her and I was like, oh, you know, she's so cute. And, and I've been wanting a baby for so long. And But there was a little bit of... Um, it wasn't quite as euphoric as I thought it was going to be. It was a little bit, um, I guess, flatter than I thought it was going to be. And and I was a bit shocked by that to the point that I was like, oh, I think I I have to think about how much I wanted her for me to feel this deep emotion. It was like she's really cute, but it could have been me looking at your baby on your chest at birth. You know, it, it didn't feel like she didn't feel like this is instantaneously my baby which was really um interesting to me and i i now know is um it, it would have been because my hormones were interfered with and um from the epidural and the cytosin and, and things like that so i i had been lucky in that i had 29 hours of really good hormones which really helped me but they were interrupted and how much they get interrupted from one woman to another varies but for me um, the epidural and the because they fill up the uh, um, the receptors for your your own natural hormones because they're a synthetic form of them. Um, your body starts reducing your own hormone production, and probably realistically, me having two intense surgeries, my hormone production was probably interfered with. So, um, so that was really interesting, and it was a couple of days later. Um, that I that I felt that mother line thing coming in, but in hindsight now I know why, and I would have done a lot of skin skin with her straight away and to try and get to try and replicate those hormones because there's lots of, you know even if you know if you're having like a lack of cesarean you can still replicate a lot of those hormones very quickly if you know how to. So, mm. but at that point I didn't know how to, and so it took a couple of days before that real mother line. And connection kicked in whereas with my other daughter, where it wasn't um it wasn't like it was um you know fireworks it was just a non-issue it was just like there was never a gap it just was a continual thing and you know? I I think that's so important because I even even though it was so short-lived and and the intervention was short I still had that moment of gee you know I imagined I was going to be maternal my whole life I wanted this so bad but at that moment I didn't feel instantaneously maternal and, and I thought that was a bit strange to me and I think there's so many women out there who their hormones have being interfered with interventions or through that they haven't felt like even if you're feeling scared or unsafe it can interfere with your hormones so from emotional reasons their hormones have been interfered with and, and they, they have this perception that they're not very maternal, or they have no maternal instinct, or they don't feel connected to their babies, and often they take that on as a, a personality thing rather than it's actually in response to what you've been through. It's a normal response with that bit of interference. So it's, a hormonal it's a hormonal response. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, um, so yeah. So then, I, then we transferred back next door into our birth center, birth center and um, fed her, and and so the whole labour I was very good with. Um, going with the flow and let's see what happens. But now I was, you know, and I think the miscarriage and with the pregnancy had really prepped me for that. But now I was, I had my baby. I didn't need to worry about that. And and I was a midwife, and I knew how to change nappies, and I knew how to breastfeed. <laughs> I knew how to do all this. So now I was gonna kind of come into my own and just sh- take over. And so I. I popped it and I was like, yes, demand feeding's good and I popped her on my breast and I, you know, I did the nipple to chest and sides on, on and big special K Kellogg's mouth and on she went <laughs> and it hurt. And I, I was like, "Huh? And I, it's not meant to hurt? Is it really meant to hurt? Have I just been lying to women? Does it just hurt? And I'm a big wuss, you know, so I had all these questions of myself and I'd say to the midwives, can you check my attention? Attachment, and they'd say, "Oh, yeah, it's a beautiful attachment. She's good mouth, and you know, perfect." And I'm like, "It hurts." And they're like, "Oh, maybe your nipples just need to toughen up a bit." Okay, all right, right. And and so I went like this, and then I, I was like, "She's feeding." I know you meant to demand feed, but she's feeding all the time, like all the time. And maybe, maybe if I, you know, people would say, you know, those. When people see you in hospital, they only see a glimpse of that a snapshot of what's going on, and so they give you an idea for that snapshot which you know might be different to the next snapshot someone sees so all these little different things in my ears and do you mean from the midwife yeah, just bits of information around breastfeeding and and even the ones I'd heard over years as the midwife <laughs> and so I started thinking, oh, maybe if I hold her out a little bit, that'll make sure maybe she'll have a better feed, you know, like if instead No, no, like if I make her wait a bit. Like if, you know, she's on the boob every hour. Maybe if I can maybe she's not hungry. Maybe I need to do something else and in two hours I'll let her go to the boob. And anyway, so I started trying to fiddle with her a little bit and went home and day three discovered that she was dehydrated because she wasn't attaching right and she was actually wedging my nipple and we had all sorts of issues. And um, and and so I get—I guess, I guess that, that lesson with my next birth very much said to me, you do what you need to do, kid. And I just let her get on in whatever position she wanted, which... This is the second baby. The second baby, which was um, such a... Uh, like she attached basically on her back of her head backwards. It was so bad looking and no non textbook that the lactation consult wanted to take photos to take it to a um conference to say not all babies <laughs> attach the same way. And she had to do that because of the shape of the palate of her her mouth and the roof of her mouth. She needed to do that to be able to swallow and feed at the same time and and um, so with the first one I tried to do what I thought was meant to be right. The second one I went, I have no idea. You do what you need to do, and and she figured it out. And so the first one then we also had, you know, all these other little, and the the reason I'm saying this is because normal can be really varied. So we had the breastfeeding issues. Then we had um, that my milk didn't seem to come in like it just Where's this milk coming in business? Okay, well, it's there somewhat. It must have come in, but it wasn't obvious. And then we had probably two weeks, I think. I had um, that my, the lockier that you lose was a lot heavier than usual. I thought, oh, that's not textbook. Maybe I should mention it. And um, there was no, I I didn't have a fever. I didn't have, pain or anything anyway i mentioned it and next thing i was having an ultrasound and next thing um they we believe there was retained products even though my placenta looked like it was complete when it came out and then i was off for um surgery for a dnc to to get my retained placenta so to speak and and, um then i was trying to be all who was having problems um, whilst being in bed with drips and antibiotics and getting thrush and all these mm. sorts of things. And and I also had a baby who had severe colic and reflux. And, and through all of this, it was just so challenging and so hard, but I can just remember thinking so many times, I'm so glad that I had a good birth. Because even though it was so long, I felt after that birth, I felt like I can do anything. If I can do, you know, I feel so strong. I feel so powerful. I feel like a, that I run a marathon that I never even had to train for. I, I just feel extraordinarily strong. I'm so much stronger than my husband and everyone around me. I was like, I'm I'm frigging Wonder Woman, yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. was so powerful in that personal experience because I oh, it was just so so hard and then and that can I just say that yeah. that was really
2: shocking to me like yeah. in a good way because I came to visit Deb in the hospital the day after her baby was born and I came in so nervously like tiptoeing in not knowing what I was going to find thinking that I was going to find her like how I'd been like basically a sobbing mess on the bed and mm. sort of falling apart and she she, well, you weren't like that. That's how you were no, feeling. No, that's how I was feeling. But that's yeah, not that's how you right. presented. That's not how I presented. Yeah. yeah she's right. Um, and so I came in and I can remember just feeling like like I was clutching at my heart. It just felt like, what am I going to find? How is she going to be? And she it was just okay, you know. She was just, I, uh, I think, sitting up in bed and giving directions to people <laughs> <laughs> because there was lots of, you know, she had lots of support in there and. Just, you know, running the show. Like she was just really confident and happy and I've just had a baby and wow and look at that. And I'm just like, you're kidding me. This is how it can be? Oh, my God. Oh, and I was so relieved and I came out and I cried all the way home (laughs) because I was just so happy for her and so relieved and I think her dad was looking after my little boy at home and I got home and, you know, took him and had a cuddle with him and then just went into the toilet and just sobbed. (laughs) Oh, wow. Just
1: just so relieved. So anyway, back to you. And um, anyway, and then so I had that surgery and then two weeks later I I got a urine infection from it so I went back in really, really, really sick and had to have more surgery and that um, basically was the last nail in the coffin for my daughter's breastfeeding. So I had to, to grieve that over time. But but um, interestingly, the next birth, you know, I also had the same issue with the loss going on for a long time and I started panicking and going, oh, no. Um, even though I thought maybe that's just normal for me but when it happened again it was it brought it all back so I I totally you know understand that idea that things trigger (laughs) but I, I had a wonderful midwife who said let's just watch your temperature just watch what you do this could be normal for you and And it just resolved itself on its own. And the breastfeeding, as I said, the attachment, she attached how she wanted to attach. She fed for 16 hours out of 24 hours. This is the second baby. The second baby. Um, So this is the baby I I decided not to say you're feeding too much. I just let her do what she needed to do. And with 16 hours out of 24 hours, which obviously meant I needed really good support around me, so I could basically just sit there with her feeding, sleeping, awake, whatever, and still took day seven for my milk to come in, which is I think I've come across one other person in that scenario, which is really, really unusual. And so basically I needed every bit of hormonal help and every bit of support and all the stars aligned for those things to happen, and, I'm, and I was like, "Well, I can see why my mother thought she could never breastfeed," and but it happened, and I breastfed my f- child into toddlerhood, and I breastfed her exclusively for nine months or something, ten months, because mm. she had some allergy signs and things, and and so again, you know, I'm certain so neither of my labors have been textbook at all, neither of my postnatal periods have been textbook, and but you know, the body's so well designed, usually you know, that question, it, could this be normal for me is so important because it's such a wide, wide range mm-hmm. of normal. And and I guess and then the second thing that came out of that birth was that um, I knew before I birthed, you, you know, I knew birth could be amazing and powerful and wonderful and I'd seen it. I also knew that women weren't, a lot of women weren't experiencing it that way but my birth told me you know what it doesn't have it doesn't have to be a certain type of birth that that birth had lots of challenges and it wasn't textbook and there was interventions and it still launched me into motherhood feeling incredibly confident and positive and it was such a gift for what came and i thought oh thank goodness because i don't know how i would cope or how women cope and 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 women don't cope going into motherhood with without feeling that positivity and without feeling that confidence we're actually feeling the exact opposite, feeling really quite, um, you know, that they've failed or, or lacking confidence or, or any of those things. And, and so my, that birth really said to me, this is important, not just for the day, but this is as important because it helps you go into motherhood and imagine doing that from a bad start. Yeah. And any birth can be a really good birth. Um, can can have positive aspects to it. So, um, yeah. So I guess, and that's what. And I'll let, um, Melissa talk a little bit in a second. But that's what led me into birth talk, just wanting to make birth better, and wanting to support women who didn't have great births. You know, to 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 be able to heal from that, and and to say I understand that it's hugely important, you were hugely vulnerable, and anybody feeling like you did during that time, that's going to have an impact, and that's not how it's meant to be, I guess. Yeah. And there's more, but I'm okay, just going to yeah. head over to because I'll, Melissa's – I'll see, if, yeah. I'll see
2: if had anything more. Did you have anything more you wanted to
0: say to Deb? Yes. About- so, Deb, how, how long after your first birth was your second pregnancy uh
1: 22 months i'm just laughing Twenty-two months yeah Yeah. Yeah. the conception of the first birth was challenging the second one so much yeah Yeah. (laughs) um yeah and did you get just going right
0: back to after she was born for your first Mm -hmm. birth did you have a period uh, just noting like you had the 30 hour labor and um you know all the things that sort of led up to it and what happened and um, how you felt and did you have a good
1: sleep after that <laughs> Well no because I had a screaming baby Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had a baby that was hungry who had um um pain in her head because her head had been squished in a really bad position and every time she was trying to attach it was causing pain in her head. I didn't know this at the time. I found that out afterwards. And um who fed wanted to feed all the time and I can remember literally on on day I don't know, whatever it was, in the first week somewhere in in my spare bedroom, jumping like those African tribes, you know, just yes. literally two feet <laughs> off the ground because it was the only thing that settled her. And my mother-in-law and my mother and my husband were all flat out of sleep saying we can't do it anymore, we're exhausted. And I was jumping and thinking... She's the one who's had the baby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can remember thinking, thank God I can do it because no one else can, yeah. you know. And, and yeah, so I... No, I didn't get to have a sleep for a very long time. I think when I got hospitalized at the month when when she was a month old and was really sick, maybe then I slept a bit, but yeah. hospital beds aren't so comfortable.' Well, <laughs> pretty tough yeah, yeah. And, and to the point that when i felt I found out I was pregnant with my second one when my first one was one, and I was like, "Yeah, I want to do birth again, but oh my God, the postnatal period and i was I was in tears, I was thinking I, I can't I've got a baby, I can't do that with another baby if 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 it's the same. I I was just so upset at the time, thinking, I don't know if I can do it. And I was just like, well, I I just have to, it's and it will probably be different. And then my my second baby was, you know, she she came on her own terms, she was in a good position, it was a much shorter labor, there was no interference with the hormones. And as you heard with the postnatal period, I let her do whatever she needed to do and she was the easiest baby in history. She was just delightful. I was just like, oh, thank God. So, you know, um, yes. No, I didn't get to have a sleep after my 30 hours. But because of the hormones, I didn't need to. I was okay. I was exhausted but I was okay because a lot of the hormones, I mean, I had that interference for a short period with um, with the drug interventions but um, then I was feeding, and and you know, so four out of five hormones come back up during feeding. So I think my body just kept going. Right, keep going, keep, keep going. going. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Yeah. So the birth lasted a few months, I think. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for sh- the, it just your optimism just shined in that story too, and I, I think the thing I got from it was the the support
1: I suppose that yes. you set up. Um and coming from information, you know, that I've had seen birth and so many women, you know. That's why really good information, really good support for women is so important for them to have a good birth. Yeah.
0: So there you find part one. And so what I've done is I've split this podcast up into two and stay tuned. Uh with the next episode. You'll hear part two and you'll hear a bit more from Mel and her birth experiences and definitely the journeys and we'll talk more on the book that they've just released, How to Heal a Bad Birth. Such good content. So uh, sit tight and stay tuned for part two, episode eight. Did you connect with this episode? Then head over to our website, circleofbirth.com. There you'll find show notes, pictures, resources and potentially connect with today's storyteller, Don't forget to sign up to be updated with new empowering...